This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical, a show exploring the world inside and outside the evangelical subculture. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. My guests this week are Stephen Jones and Seth Harshman, the co-hosts of the E9 podcast. Longtime listeners of the show will know Stephen from his prior appearances on the show way back in episode two, as well as a three-part series at the end of 2016 discussing the mystical traditions in Christianity. In this first part of our two-part conversation, Stephen and... <clears throat> In this first part of our two-part conversation, Stephen and Seth walk me through the Enneagram. Listeners to this show likely have at least a passing familiarity with the Enneagram if you're not already a full-blown Enneagram nerd. The Enneagram is a tool for self-understanding and has been instrumental for a number of ex-evangelicals who have undergone deconstruction. Seth and Stephen talk about the nine different personality types found in the Enneagram and the things that motivate them. I know both Stephen and Seth from college, and it was great to reconnect with them and discuss this with them. In the second part of my conversation with them, which will be published later, Seth and Stephen typed me and helped to give me some initial footing to explore my type. You can find their podcast, The E9 Podcast, wherever you subscribe to shows. Now, with the publication of this show, I'm going to try something a little different. I have a second feed for the show. It's called EXV Extras. And this feed is hosted by Anchor, which is this podcast app for Android and iOS. Now, that app allows for call-ins, just like on radio shows. And I'd love to get your feedback on this episode with a feature I'm calling Call and Response. I know, it's church nerdy. Sorry. Deal. I'll publish in a... Sh- Basically, what will happen is I'll publish a short mini-sode in that feed asking a question. And this week, that question is... What is your Enneagram type, and how has knowing it helped you with your personal development? Again, the question is, what is your Enneagram type, and how has knowing it helped your personal development? So here's what you do. You download the Anchor app and sign up. Search for EXV Extras and follow the show. Then tap the call-in feature. There's a button on the when you go to my show page in the app, and you tap that call-in button and leave a message i believe it caps out at around one minute so keep it succinct what i'll do is i'll publish your responses in a follow-up episode in that exv extras feed this is just a little experiment and i just am curious to see how it goes as always you can follow me on twitter at br chastain you can follow the show on twitter at exvangelical pod you can like the show on facebook at facebook.com slash exvangelical pod of course, you can uh, request to join the Exvangelical Facebook group, which has over 3,000 members of folks talking through different um, aspects of being Exvangelical. And if you could please go over to iTunes or the, your Apple Podcast app and rate or review the show, I would greatly appreciate that. It helps people uh, find the show. And if you want to support the show, you can also do th- so via Patreon at patreon.com slash exvangelical. All right, everyone, let's get into it. 
Everybody, welcome back to Exvangelical. I have two guests with me this week. I have Stephen Jones, who's been on the show a few times. He is also known as uh, the Skeptical Mystic, as well as Seth, Seth Harshman. I know both of them from my college days. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks. How are you? So uh, let's start with you, Seth. Um, I'd like to hear just a little bit about how you... Um, what we're here to talk about today, actually, is the Enneagram, which is very well known in certain parts of the internet uh, for being this sort of personality typing system. Um, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, so I'd love to hear sort of how you discovered the Enneagram and your approach to it, and then Stephen, from you as well. Yeah, so um, the way I discovered the Enneagram is early in college, uh, I went home uh, probably as a freshman or sophomore all excited about some knowledge I'd been hearing about like MBTI because every every freshman sophomore gets super excited about Myers-Briggs mm-hmm. at some point I would go home and it was just like this thing that you know I, I fell in love with like everyone else does and there was a, a pastor that was a really good friend with my parents and he said you know MBTI is kind of interesting but you should check out this thing called the Enneagram and he even like brought some books over by my parents mm-hmm. house like a day or two later and and they sat on my parents' shelves for years because it just sounded so weird to me. Like the way he explained, he's like, it's actually organized around our core sins, <laughs> and which is language I don't use anymore. Um, but I just thought, oh, this doesn't sound great at all. It sounds kind of wishy-washy and hippie, and I don't, I don't get it. It just, it, I wasn't ready for yeah. it. And at that age, a lot of people most people I would say aren't ready for it. Um, and, but I never forgot the name and I never forgot the symbol, even though I wasn't really interested in it. And so, uh, come back around to, uh, early to mid thirties. And I'm actually an adjunct professor at that, at the same university that I had been a student at. Um, Uh, the one you talk about all the time (laughs) and uh, and a a student from another university nearby in the same county comes up to me and said he was he was dating a a student that I knew and he was like you know Professor Harshman you should you should check this thing out it's kind of interesting I'm real into it and so I started looking into it and I was more interested Mm -hmm. I was more ready for it but it wasn't until sometime after that uh, my friend Steve Jones here, um, who had really gotten into it, to, started talking about it. And I was like, well, if, if Steve's into it, there must really be something to mm-hmm. it. And since then, which has been uh, you know, a few years, um, I really dove in hard and got to, got to understand it and really wanted to. I wasn't just passionate about like my type but just about the system as a whole and trying to understand it and how to uh, apply it and use it in a way that's, that's beneficial um, to those around me. So mm-hmm. that's how I Yeah, it. interesting. Yeah, interesting that it was sort of that circuitous path. But, but I, think that's, yeah. I think that's common for yeah. a lot of people. Like I've sort of been, a, um, I've sort of been exposed to it through, through Steve and some other people on and off over the last couple of years, and it just is something that sort of 
keeps nagging at me, I guess. <laughs> you know, I, I still like to use terms like providential, mm-hmm. like even just that, that very first introduction to it where I wasn't at all interested. I never forgot the word Enneagram. I, I remember every once in a while seeing those books still sitting on my parents' shelf and going, oh, yeah, I remember that that thing that I wasn't interested mm-hmm. in. Most time I'm not interested in something. It, I just it's gone. Right. Yeah. But that just kind of stuck around. Somehow. Yeah. Interesting. So, Steve, how about you? Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting, um, Seth's story, and it seems like so many others, um, hinge on the idea of some kind of trustworthy authority of some kind, right? Like, not necessarily an authority figure, but someone who you trust. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's certainly how it worked for me, um, because the Enneagram on its own seems like a really strange thing. It's esoteric and um, kind of arcane in ways. And I'm really skeptical about things. That's why the word is in my uh, online moniker, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I resist um, a lot of these things, and I resisted the Enneagram for years. Um, uh, however, um, I was uh, studying spiritual direction um, under uh, some uh, wonderful nuns, and uh, Eventually, one of them really started to expose me to the Enneagram as a useful tool. Um, And I still resisted for a long time, even while I was trying to understand it. Um, For me, and it seems like sometimes for uh, many others, the Enneagram doesn't really click as a model, as as a language, until you see yourself in it. Mm -hmm. When you recognize yourself reflected back at you in ways that are revealing and potentially very uncomfortable then the then the system as a whole begins to take on meaning and make sense right um and that's what it took for me was finally recognizing um parts of myself being revealed to me um in ways that made me feel uh both known and horrified (laughs) um and that's what convinced me that there was uh, a powerful potential Mm -hmm. as a tool, right? Um, and though we tend to um, lump the Enneagram in with other personality typologies, um, it I'm not sure that it qualifies as one. Um, it's sort of the anti-personality typology in a way because its basic premise is that you are not truly as you have come to know yourself. Mm. It's about exposing the way you've limited yourself and you call that a personality, Hmm. but suggesting ways that you might be free from those uh, artificial limitations, you know? Yeah. One of the common phrases that's, that's used. And I I remember when, when Steve was really getting excited about it, this, this stuck with me and this, this idea stuck with me, but the the phrase is you are not your personality. And that, even if we've not thought about it, we that's what we tend to assume is uh, yeah the, the, my personality that's who I am that's how we use that mm. word um, but the Enneagram challenges that directly it says you are not your personality and so it exposes to you what your personality is so that you can then move beyond it mm-hmm. so even even the the nine personalities uh, are only exposed for the sake of then moving beyond them and finding your true self mm-hmm yeah, that's a very that is a very you know compelling and interesting idea to you know try to supersede those things that that 
that limit you and that that you feel like are not <laughs> that you're not able to sort of break out of i guess like these are just yeah. the you know the sort of you know thorn in your flesh sort of thing like this is the thing yeah. you're stuck yeah. with and uh and yeah so so yeah let's get into a, a bit about it then um and sort of you know talk about those nine personality types and why they're um why they help people understand themselves better um yeah the enneagram that it's it refers to like a nine-sided figure and that's where the, the name comes from um but and even though lots of people and i'm sure lots of listeners know um about the enneagram i'd love to be able to give some context here to those different personality types and maybe some other info and if we're led that direction by the conversation sure the the symbol is one of the most recognizable elements of the enneagram is is where it takes its name enneagram means drawing of nine right um and so there's this interesting little drawing where the the numbers are interconnected in this complex way if you um, google enneagram it'll pop up yep. so if you're not familiar with it do so now <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. um and all of those connections end up being very meaningful eventually But at first, it's helpful to just back away from that image and notice that there are nine points around a circle and that they're arranged in groups of three. So at the very top, you have a group of eight, nine, and one. On on the left side, you have a group of five, six, and seven. And on the right side, you have a group of two, three, four. And that's because they represent... um, like in classic anthropology, the three parts of the self, right? The, the head on the left side, the heart on the right side, and in the center, the, the will or the gut, right? Mm-hmm. So the idea is that um, when we're young at some point, whether it's a moment or whether it's a process, we begin to uh, be exposed to a world that is risky or dangerous or fill in the blank. It's just too big for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, overwhelming in some way. Yeah. And we react to that um, generally by losing touch with part of ourselves by um, kind of fortressing ourselves up in one particular aspect of ourselves. And so we tend to become uh, compulsive about that, right? So, for instance, I, I'm a type – I identify as a type 5, I guess. Um, but – I very clearly am. Once we start talking about those patterns, it's like someone is taking snapshots of my private life. (laughs) Um, um, But what that means is, yes, I do head things well, but I'm also compulsive about them. um, And I tend to be very out of touch with my heart. Um, Because all of these numbers are on a circle, yes, but you'll notice that there's a, a very significant gap between the four and the five. Um, and that's because a circle is one way to look at it, but a horseshoe is another. So they're really on a spectrum from five being on one extreme end and four being on the other extreme end. So five is the headiest of the head types and four is the hardiest of the heart types in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And so that would be a useful way to go about, um, talking about these nine types 
is we'll probably start with fives because we're, yep. we're both fives. And that yeah. way we can talk about the head center, those three types, and then we'll talk about the will or the gut center, yep. those three types, and then we'll finish with heart center and those three types. And I think it's also useful for everyone to hear us talk about our types first because I'm also a type five. Mm -hmm. And um, sometimes when you talk about them, it can, you can kind of sound a bit like a jerk because you're calling out all the stuff that people don't want to recognize about themselves. <laughs> And so it's, it's hard to not sound judgmental. It, it, yeah, it's very hard to not sound judgmental, and it and it's actually kind of useful to talk about them in a way where those things are maybe a little bit inflated. Because when you're when you're first hearing about the enneagram, you tend to recognize this the the, the crummy stuff about you, the bad mm -hmm. stuff. Mm -hmm. That's what's most easy to type with. And that's one of the yeah. most revealing things about how the enneagram works. It's basic assumption that you are not your personality. The, mm -hmm. Each of the types is most recognizable in you the less healthy you are. Yeah. Mm, interesting. Yeah. The more healthy you become, the more balance you have, and it's harder to identify those dysfunctional patterns in yourself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so. so identifying patterns early on means exaggerating the negative, and that's just kind of how it has to work. And And when you're being typed, when you're going through the nine types and trying to figure out what you are uh, – most people's experience with that is that one hurt the most. Yes. That's the one I am. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. what happens. That whichever one just stings the most. If you really hope oh, you're not one of those sucks. types, yeah. that might be you. Yeah. yeah. It's the one that you're going, I wish. Can we, can we just skip to the next one, please? That's probably whatever one you are. Yeah. So we, we like to start with five because um, since exploring the negative aspects of those types can come off sounding so negative or judgmental, it's helpful to start by exposing the rougher parts of ourselves, um, you know, first, mm -hmm. as a gesture of goodwill, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to start with a five, Seth? Yeah, let's start with a five. So uh, fives, like Steve said, they are the, the headiest of the head types. We are a, a type that we are just uh, super stuck in our head, uh, we actually have the, a term that we use for that called castling up, where uh, that is where we feel safest, is inside our own head. And and if we can have the right way of thinking about something, the right way of, of ordering things in our mind, that's what makes us feel safe. And that's uh, – I, I pull that out first because that's important for all the head types, five, six, and seven, all have issues around fear and a sense of security. Mm -hmm. That's what we're trying to achieve in three different ways. We're all trying to feel safe. And so for fives, we do that by trying to have a way of thinking about the world and being prepared with the right knowledge, particularly. Um, if we, we want to always be uh, prepared for what's going to come at us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Sometimes it's usually knowledge. Um, Sure. Sometimes it's uh, it's about being organized and prepared mm -hmm. because even knowledge is a way of trying to bring order to a world that seems so disorganized. So um, there's so much uh, drama and so much intensity and 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 it it's it's risky not being able to make sense out of all that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the even the accumulation of knowledge is a way to try to bring a sense of order to the world so that we know how to act within it. Yeah. However, 
the dysfunctional end of that means that unless we're particularly healthy and coping well with it, um, Which I am it, not. it tends to be a withdrawal from the world and we will become locked in a pattern of perpetual need to prepare. Mm. And so we tend to not move into right action. Yeah. Gotcha. We will, we will prepare forever and never actually do anything. Yeah. Uh, we love the way things are in theory. And then we're, we're hesitant to put them out into the world because that's when cracks start to form. We'd rather just have the, the perfect mental image of how things should be. And, uh, which, which means that really we only ever watch life from the sidelines. We never participate. That's the danger that we fall into. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, then the other danger, um, the other dysfunction is that we're, we're so heady and so, um, yeah, just so stuck in our heads that, uh, we're, we're very out of touch with our heart. And so five will, will talk about how, like, if you ask a five, how they feel, it's kind of like, look, I mean, I, I'll check inside. I'll look inside my heart and go, I'm not sure what's there right now. It's just kind of a blank spot for now. Mm-hmm. Like if, even if something major is currently going on, I'm saying, I, I don't know how I feel about this yet. My emotions are going to come later. Usually because, once we're alone. Yeah. Usually once we're alone, when it's safe. Yeah. Um, there's something in the, in the five dysfunction where emotions aren't safe yet. It's not until I go back into my castle that I'm, I allow myself to feel those. And I, and even then we process them at like a trickles pace. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So the call for a five is to somehow, um, there are various tools within the Enneagram Mm -hmm. that can help with this. But the goal for a five is then to, um, let go of the obsessive need to prepare and to move into right action, find a way to engage the world without having everything figured out ahead of time. And so I like to use the, the model of improvisational acting for that, right? Um, learn how to improvise rather than uh, rely on scripts all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, expose yourself to the world, um, mm-hmm. which is a sign of health for fives. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, part of uh, the reason, and I don't think we've mentioned it, but Steve and I are, are starting a podcast about the Enneagram part of the reason we're doing that is to try and act counter to like just uh, the, the tendency that we have to just sit back and read books about the Enneagram and talk about it amongst ourselves. Right. No, we want to, we actually want to act. We want to do something. We want to put something out there. Yeah. Hang on, we have people walking, walking in my house right now. So we're going <laughs> to, it's, it's probably good. a good chance for us to switch to six when we, uh, yeah, we'll come back and switch to six All right. So we were we were about to transition to sixes. So yes. yeah. So sixes are still in the head center. Mm-hmm. They're they still um, have an obsessive uh, mental. Uh, energy happening it just manifests in a different way than fives do yeah sixes uh really embody the the core issue of the head center which is fear and security in fact so sixes are uh just the most fearful of all types uh 
the way Sixes work is they, they basically just scan their environment for whatever hazards may be there constantly. They call this hypervigilance. Uh, and so, like, my favorite example of this, it, it, it's not always, like, life-threatening hazards. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my, my favorite example is uh, I was at a party with my wife one day. It was a, a kid's birthday party taking place in Church Fellowship Hall. Uh, she and a friend and I were, were having a conversation, and uh, I had no clue where my son was. He was, like, three at the time. But of course, she knew. Like she was very aware of where he was at all the time. And uh, at one point, he goes over to the cake table, and someone hands him a paper plate full of cake. Uh, and he has no supervision of there. He's all the way across the fellowship hall from us. And as soon as he puts his hands on that plate, my wife says, "Ooh, I'll be right back. All I can see is cake all over the floor." <laughs> no, she doesn't say, "I'm afraid he'll drop it." She actually says, all I can see. Mm. And that's what the way it is for sixes like all the time. They, they scan their environment, find all the hazards, and then inflate them. It's almost as if they see the world in terms of what can always go wrong. Like yeah. that's the lens they see everything through. And, and, and as if it is going to go wrong, especially yeah. the, the more unhealthy they are. Mm-hmm the more inflated all of those hazards become. It's it's as if all the wrong stuff is going to happen all the time. Which which makes them great troubleshooters for your project, whatever your yeah. project yeah. is. Yeah. It's good to have one on a team. We talk about the dysfunctions, uh, well, so far, we've talked about two of them. It, it's worth noting that all of these dysfunctions are also strengths. This is a another term that um, is used by, by different teachers of the Enneagram, is your strength is your weakness. And so for a six, yeah, this scanning their environment and finding all the hazards is a weakness because it really inhibits um, their uh, ability to just kind of live their life um, and, and, and go about, uh, you know, doing what they want to do unafraid. Mm-hmm. At the same time, they've developed an incredible skill. The difference between strength and weakness is actually, are they stuck in a compulsion or are they exercising it out of freedom? Mm. And for all of the Enneagram types, that that is what you want to, uh, to, to, to move toward, is out of exercising all of these things as a compulsion when you are stuck in them and learn how to exercise it freely. And that, that typically takes a long time and is a huge journey. Um, sorry, mm-hmm. uh, more about six. What about the six, Steve? What else about the six? So, um, the six and the three and the nine uh, have a special relationship with each mm-hmm. other. Um, and uh, when the six is in strength, they move to nine, right? Mm-hmm. Isn't it? Yep. And so it's about uh, finding a sense of uh, peace, right? It's yeah. about trying yeah. to construct space wherein you can be peaceful um, so that you can live outside of your obsession with uh, the fear. Yeah. Now, uh, one thing that's important to know about the six, all of these, we don't need at all to get into uh, the issue of subtypes and instinctual stacking and all that stuff. If you want to know more about that stuff, we've got a podcast where we'll be addressing a lot of that uh, more in depth. And it's fascinating However, it's worth noting for the six, 
all of the all the nine types have what we call a counter type where you're still participating in the same obsession but it moves in the opposite direction it shows up drastically differently yeah we notice this most dramatically in the six and this is why sometimes the six can be a little tricky to identify because the counter type six um looks more like a thrill seeker right they're engaging in all kinds of risky behaviors all the time and they're not even aware that those behaviors are being driven by the same fear that in other people um, manifests as paralyzation. Mm. Yeah, so what this looks like is when they scan their environment, they see all of the hazards, but instead of running away, they run towards it. So it's basically the difference between flight or fight. Exactly. And they fight instead of flight. And so it, it almost shows up as like someone who is constantly trying to prove that they're not afraid. Um, and but they may not they're even not aware of that. yeah they may not even be aware of that that need to prove that they're not afraid and so when they see a hazard they're ready to just jump right into yeah. it um, which can be really bad <laughs> that's not necessarily healthy behavior right yeah <laughs> uh, so so yeah the, those are what we call that's the the counter phobic six where a typical six would be a, a, a phobic mm. six mm-hmm. um, now sixes are fantastic. Let me say this. Um, we estimate that uh, we, you know, Enneagram people, whatever that is. <laughs> yeah. We estimate that sixes are probably 50% of the population. Um, and so they are the, the overwhelming majority over any other type. And this is good because they are the glue that holds everything together. Boy, they keep us all safe in ways that we don't even recognize on a day-to-day basis. Um, uh I think it would be a fun game for our podcast sometime to actually just go around the circle and imagine if any other type was 50% of the population and just speculate about what kind of dystopia that would be. <laughs> no other type works if they are 50% of the population. We'd all be dead. <laughs> so uh, we should all thank God for, for the sixes that surround us every day. Uh, they are uh, angels unbeknownst to us. They're, they're just wonderful. <laughs> yeah it i mean the six is in a very obvious way because there are so many of them but we really do benefit from our own and each other's dysfunction in yeah. uh, fascinating ways and so uh i mean that's part of the task of the enneagram um i've emphasized how well we both have how we're not our personalities and we need to be free of those but also you don't start coming from the place you come from you know, you don't lose your uh, rootedness in a particular type, right? And so mm-hmm. I'm still a five, no matter how healthy I am. And also that is good. I don't need to obsess with unbecoming myself, just merely not being limited by the boundaries that I keep around myself, right? right. So I still do castle time. I still participate in a lot of those yeah. behaviors yeah. that used to be more dysfunctional and now just have more balance, right? And so – yeah. And so, um, hooray for sixes, uh, even in their dysfunction. Yes. Because there is, there is benefit from all these things. True. We should move on to the seven. Move on to the seven. Which is, uh, seven is still in the head type, but the least headiest of the head types. At least they appear that way. They appear that way. Because sevens, rather than, um, okay, the way a five will, um, castle up in the mind, right? Sevens actually um, will try to avoid 
um, the the cyclical patterns of thought that fives kind of get lost in. Yeah. And they do that by seeking happiness. Mm. Um, which is not necessarily just straight pleasure, but can be. Um, sevens, um, okay, I, I like to say, we always like to say this, uh, um, this phrase about money not being able to buy happiness. But a seven knows that's bullshit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Give them $10 and they'll throw a party for you and your friends and have a good time. Sevens know how to generate fun. They know how to find it for themselves. And this is uh, obviously brilliant for a lot of reasons, but the dysfunction in it is that they're trying to avoid dealing with the darkness, uh, the hard mm -hmm. feelings, uh, negative thoughts. Um, they're avoiding those things rather than dealing with them. And eventually that will catch up with them if they don't find a way to have balance. Yeah, so, I mean, where a five naturally, compulsively moves in, that's the very space that the seven is terrified of. They never want to get stuck inside themselves because they feel like if, if I take a moment, if I stop, if it's quiet, then I'm gonna feel the sadness and I might never get out. So that's the burden that sevens bear all the time, is that if they allow, any amount of sadness, it might just take over. They might never get out of it. Mm, mm -hmm. um, and this is something that I encourage um, uh, anyone who is uh, working with the Enneagram at all is not just find out their type, but but take some time to, to step into the shoes of the other types to help understand them. If, you, if you're only learning your type in the Enneagram, you're missing out on, on the richness that it has to offer to, to help you understand and empathize with the other types. Um, and so, uh, like I said, sevens seem like so much fun. I, I, I know several sevens, I have sevens in my life. I, I love them. They're great to be around. But I also have to remind myself that there is a burden that they're that they're carrying that comes along with all this happiness. I've actually had a seven basically quote that exact same thing to me as I was talking with her. She said, "If I ever get sad, what if I never get out of it?" Mm -hmm. And then she went on to say, "Like, what if I let someone else around me be sad?" So not only was she bearing the burden of her own happiness all the time, she felt like she wasn't allowed to let anyone around her be happy so everyone in the room their happiness is on her all the time mm. it's it, it so it's it's really this i mean just imagine feeling that way this incredible burden um now one of the other interesting things about a seven a seven kind of has a superpower yeah um sometimes we call uh well some people have called this monkey brain mm -hmm. um uh where sevens uh will just constantly go from one idea to the next uh, they make great interior decorators. They have all these interesting things they tend to be good at. Yeah. Except the the link in them is that they're great for generating ideas. Yes. Um, if you want a good brainstorm, you want to include sevens in that project, right? Sevens aren't so great for follow-through. That's what you have sixes for, yeah. right? Um, but sixes aren't quite as good for brainstorming because they'll be more likely to shoot ideas down. Because they see what could go wrong. Right. But sevens aren't thinking about that end of things. They're not thinking about what could go wrong. They're thinking about the possibilities. Yeah. Yeah. Sevens are obsessed with possibility. Um, they they have trouble committing to any one thing. Uh, because, uh, and actually, a, a guest 
on our podcast came up with this phrase that that we love. They sevens want to choose everything instead of any one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, they they don't like to limit their possibilities down. They don't like commitment because commitment feels like being stuck, and being stuck is is where sadness happens. What if the thing I commit to when I get there is not what will make me happy? Yeah, and I need to get out of it so I can do the thing that will make me happy. Uh, I've heard of a famous seven on another podcast talk about this, but uh, one of the sevens that I know um, had this very same experience where after they got married, they actually had to mourn the possibilities that had died along with them getting married. So basically every other woman, they they had to, on their honeymoon, mourn this, the, the, that they would never have any other possibility that they are now stuck with just one woman for the rest of their lives. And it's very healthy for a seven to do that. They should do that instead of, you know, uh, thinking that the possibilities are still out there. Right. Or, or building resentment Um, towards their partner. And so I have a friend who on his honeymoon basically huddled himself down in the corner of a closet in his hotel room and just sat there and cried, weep. (laughs) And his wife is like knocking on the door like, are you okay? And he's like, I'm fine. I'm fine. I just need to do this. And, and it, I mean, and it's good that he did, like I said, but that's kind of like the mentality of the, the seven. Like they want everything, mm-hmm. not just any one thing. Mm. They don't want to settle on anything. Yeah. So it goes for the head center. So, yeah. So it goes for the head center. Obvious parallels in all of those. They all have a kind of fear. There's something that they're trying mm-hmm. hard to avoid. It just manifests in these, uh, very different ways. Very different ways, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But that moves us into the gut center because after seven is uh, uh, the eight. Yeah, the eight. And eight is uh, eight is uh, man. Eights are willful things. Yeah. And they uh, they are very they very clearly shoot from the hip. They're gut people to the core. Yeah. So eights just have a a sense of presence unlike anyone else on the Enneagram. I mean, when an eight walks into the room, you just kind of feel gravity shift a little bit. Uh, like they just uh, carry themselves in such a way where it's, it, um, whenever, whenever I'm around an eight, I'm always just a little afraid. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have an eight that I've been doing some work with lately. And every time I talk with her on the phone, after I hang up, uh, I always have to like check myself. I'm like, why am I breathing so heavily right now? Why is my heart rate up? Like, all I was doing was having conversation, and like, I'm, I'm having a physiological response yeah. uh, to to just being on the phone with this person. Um, a lot of people find eights to be really mysterious, and and a lot of enneagram experts say that it, it took them the longest to really understand eights. If you want to understand at least male eights, I'd recommend watching the movie Patton. Mm-hmm. That's when the idea of eightness kind of congealed for me. And, and especially there's, there's a particular scene, well, two particular scenes in the movie Patton um, that, that helped me understand eights. One is uh, when Patton drives up in his Jeep onto a particular uh, battlefield and the battle is over there's carnage everywhere. Like, like there's tanks flipped over. There's, there's, uh, 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 dead bodies. There are 
wounded that that people are tending to but there's still like smoke uh from from the battle and like it it's just carnage and destruction and he walks up finds a small hill that he's standing on he's surveying this battlefield he takes a puff of his cigar and says god i love this <laughs> eight just want to suck the marrow out of life they, they just have this way of drawing in like just the visceral energy of life and it, it just fills them up and they don't shy away from the conflict of yeah it. no in fact eights uh oftentimes will encourage conflict um if you have if you have a family member who at thanksgiving loves to just like bring up a controversial t- topic at the dinner room table and then just sit back and watch people argue yeah. <laughs> that's an eight who's who's sucking the marrow out of all of you he needs that conflict that energy in the room to fill himself up or herself up right we like to use this image of uh when an eight meets someone new uh or not necessarily even when they meet somebody new, new no. but when they meet somebody new they'll uh they'll be antagonistic toward that person yeah, yeah. to see how they respond because, uh, interestingly enough, um, I mean, eights are aware that they are powerful people. And if they're not in a situation where the people around them can handle that power, then they're not safe. Yeah. Right? They're not free to be themselves. So, they need to know that you can offer resistance. So an eight, not necessarily in a, in a negative sense at all, will, will absolutely get in your face and say, fuck you. And that's proper their, response. That's their favorite term. <laughs> if you want to make an eight feel safe, you say "fuck you" right back, and then they'll respect you, and then they feel yeah, safe. Right? They it, know you can handle their conflict. This is actually the second scene from Patton that I was going to bring up. Oh yeah. Because so so eights are they're afraid of vulnerability. In fact, they they don't even like to recognize their own vulnerability at all, and so they put on just this very strong front. And that's basically what we've been describing. Mm-hmm. And so, how do you go about making a relationship? becoming friends with people if you can't be vulnerable you do it through conflict and so there's a there's another scene in Patton when uh, both the Americans and the Russians have reached Berlin and they're all celebrating together and a Russian general comes up and through his interpreter says General Patton uh, uh, General whatever a cough I can't remember his name uh, would <laughs> like to have a celebratory drink with you and Patton says, he, he says it to the interpreter, but stares straight into the other general's eyes and says, you tell that son of a bitch I'll never drink with a Russian. And the interpreter says, I can't tell him that. He says, you tell him exactly that. So the, the interpreter turns to him, says something in Russian. The, the general looks shocked, turns back to the interpreter, says something in Russian. And, and the interpreter says, General Patton, he thinks you're a son of a bitch too. And he says, oh, well, let's have a drink then. Like he just... <laughs> Like, he just needed to be called a son of a bitch back and everything was fine just to see if this guy was really worth it. Mm-hmm. That's And that's the way eights operate. They push you to see if you'll push back because they need to know that you're sturdy, mm-hmm. that they can trust you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that makes me think of so – they, they thrive on conflict. They right. need it. They don't know how to interact well, outside of that conflict typically. Yeah. Let me offer another complimentary but maybe uh, contrasting – image of an eight i'd love to hear it here's an image of an eight uh first of all uh this is a healthier eight yeah this is someone uh Patton was not necessarily yeah, a healthy eight <laughs> exactly uh um so one of the people i studied with um was uh, an older woman 
and here's she's short and pleasant. Uh, everyone loves her, um, she, uh, but she identifies as an eight, and for good reason because she also describes herself as a rhinoceros, mm. and uh, and she is she is intense. Um, she's brilliant, um, but obviously operates from her gut. Um, she trusts her intuitions. Um, and yeah, maybe she stops to consider them before she acts on them, but she trusts them. Um, and she is not afraid of calling people out. And she would call me out um, regularly. Um, this is like a – Steve's a pretty big build. And this is a tiny little nun that would walk straight up to him and get in his face. Yeah. One time she <laughs> – Just poke him in the chest. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, just this intense energy that I – I had to respect, mm -hmm. you know, and if I respected her energy, then, then she could work with me. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So eights, uh, eights can be very intense and they, they, yeah. they trust their inner authority, but so much so that they tend to be out of touch with both their heart and their head. Yeah. Right. They don't stop to consider, um, uh, before they act, uh, at least when they're less healthy. Yeah, eights are um, fire-ready aim. And they tend to be less in touch with their heart. Eights um, will leave a trail of destruction behind them and not realize it. If once they yeah. realize, like, um, their bulldozing ways are actually causing harm to people, then that's actually a problem for them. They don't like that. They're trying to... Yeah. Eights have a an angry sense of justice. They're actually trying to accomplish something mm -hmm. in the world. Um, it's just that they are the most likely to run over real people in the name of justice on behalf of people. Mm. Mm -hmm. mm. I agree. Yeah. That moves us to, into nine space. Moves us into nine. Couldn't be more different. Eight to oh nine. Oh my gosh. Uh, I don't know how they exist as neighbors. <laughs> um, actually, that would be kind of a funny. Uh, the odd couple? Yeah, like the odd couple. Like, and, a, and a nine in a house. Imagine these two people as neighbors. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, nines, uh, the, the phrase that I use to understand nines is just, just let's just turn it down a little bit. Let's just, let's just turn the volume down. See, we haven't really talked about what the best center is. Yeah. So... From what I hear, I'm not a gut person, but from what I hear, uh, reality just comes at uh, the gut people in waves. Like they just don't have any filters on it. As head people, we can, we're able to kind of filter this stuff through our head. Heart people, they filter everything that comes at them through their heart. But the gut people, it just hits them like a full body blow and reality is just coming at them. Eights. They believe that they can wrestle that tsunami back into the ocean. That's their tactic. Nines, they just at want... at its mercy. Yeah, they're at its mercy. It's almost like they don't have a defense for it. And so what they try and do is just just try and turn the volume down on everything. Let's just let's just calm everything down. They, they're always trying to, like, avoid conflict because conflict turns the volume up. They're always trying to... Uh, um, um, just make everything more peaceful. If um, they're if they belong to a group, and there's mm -hmm. conflict between members of the group, let's say that a group is loosely on two sides of an issue, because that's often how it ends up happening. Mm -hmm. um, the nine doesn't want to choose sides in that conflict. 
uh, would rather move beyond the conflict if possible, doesn't understand why it has to be so conflictual. <laughs> and um, members of both sides will trust the Nine and talk with them and believe the Nine is on their side, whereas the Nine doesn't want to be on either side. Yeah. In fact, they, they, what they say about Nines is that um, they they understand everybody's perspective but their own. Mm. So this is mm. what gets lost in their their attempts to quiet everything down and avoid conflict is that they actually lose touch with their own point of view. Mm -hmm. whereas, um, the, whereas the eight is obsessive about their own internal authority, yeah. the nine tends to not even recognize their own internal authority. Yeah. Um, nines will lose touch with their own desires, their own agendas, all in a sacrifice to try and avoid conflict and, and just turn the volume down on reality. That's that's what they're hoping is. is, is I feel like nines just have this almost like the you know when TVs used to have static. <laughs> I just realized the other day they don't anymore. <laughs> yeah. When you turn to a channel that that isn't there and it just make that <sighs> sound. I feel like there's there's just that going on in the background of both nines and ones in a different way, and they just just can we just turn that down a little bit? Can we just just get the the volume down. Let's just let's just settle it down mm -hmm. more. Mm -hmm. uh, that's that's what they're trying to do. Now, the thing about the gut center is all three types in the gut center are driven by anger, mm -hmm. just like the three types in the head center are all driven by fear, right? Yep. And so the nine does not look angry. In fact, they're often unaware of the underlying anger um, that's present all the time. It's like just, yeah. it's just a background noise. That they're they're angry about the conflict and the drama and the noise, um, but rather than get in touch with that and act on it, the dysfunction is to avoid it. Much like the seven avoids the hard feelings, the nine is avoiding the anger and the drama, um, and trying to generate peace, which makes them great peacemakers. But counterintuitively, they're better peacemakers when they're in touch with their own inner conflict rather than avoiding it. Because otherwise they tend to be peacekeepers and not actually create peace, but just try to stifle the conflict, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, this is Seth's image, but I love it so much, I'm going to selfishly tell, tell the story. <laughs> I think the best image for a nine that people will access uh, pretty easily is Bruce, Bruce Banner. Mm-hmm. Bruce Banner is absolutely a nine. He's the most peaceful and, in a sense, conflict-avoiding member ever. Uh, Except, especially in as played by Mark Ruffalo. Yeah. I suspect that Mark Ruffalo is actually a nine. Yeah. Um, His just, superpower is getting in touch with the anger that's always there. <laughs> yeah. The secret is he's always right. angry. Right, yeah. Yeah. Right? yeah. But he has to access it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then, then it's powerful. And and he but it's also a struggle like he's always holding it down, which yeah. nines typically do. They're always holding that down because they don't they don't even want to be in touch with that anger because no. anger is volume. I mean, just look at the eight who's in touch with their anger. Eights are they're voluminous. I don't know if that's the is that voluminous. 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 Whatever it is. <laughs> Uh, they, I mean, <laughs> eights have the volume turned up. That's why I don't know how eights and nines, even on the Enneagram, exist as neighbors. My goodness. I mean, except they... part of the the beautiful thing about the Enneagram yeah. is that, um, again, we won't really get into wings here. If you want to get into wings, we'll talk about all that more on our podcast for sure. 
or there are other resources. Well, we but, haven't revealed this to to the listener yet, but eventually we are gonna we are gonna type Blake, and so who knows what we'll get into we as have, we type. Yeah, Blake. maybe we have to talk about wings there. Blake, you don't know this, but you have wings. <laughs> yes, that's what and I've so, always yes. wanted. <laughs> wanted wings. <laughs> when you are locked up in one of these types, yeah, you're primarily in that energy, but pretty early on in life, like late teens, about the time that you start to settle into one type of energy, you also start to move out into a secondary, which is on either side, right? So eights frequently have a nine wing and nines frequently have an eight wing. And that's one of the strange and counterintuitive things that make people interesting. Yeah. They're not just a caricature of one of one type. They actually have. There's lots of variety right. in the enneagram. So, there's all kinds of um, uh, dynamics at play in each type. And and well, I think the the nine. I don't know that we'll be able to get into it here. I but. think the nine eight combination is just one of those very interesting pairings because they contrast so much. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. And five and four is like that. You know. Yeah. I'm a I'm a five with a four wing. That is weird. Uh, it was weird to me, whatever. <laughs> Vibes! All I have been guillotes. One is the loneliest number that you'll ever do. Two can be as bad as one. It's the loneliest number since the number one. We're almost done with the gut center. We should talk about ones. Yeah. So, um, ones are that person who just really wishes things would just stay in order. Ones are are perfectionists in a way. Um, they typically have two or three areas of life where, when they look out into the world they see how great and perfect things could be and up against that backdrop they see how things aren't that way mm. and so mm. that's what when their version of reality just has these red flags that pop up and says i'm not the way i should be and it just drives them nuts it's sort of that sense uh, of platonic ideals that's in the ether yeah yeah, yeah except yeah. that it's they walk into a room and what i would consider a room like a room to be clean they will see that there are five paper clips sitting out on the the table beside the couch and god damn it why are those paper clips there <laughs> yeah um, except here's the thing it's it's rarely rage at the person it can come across that way it's it's almost more like um the, the classic image I like to use is the dishwasher just because it's a great center for uh, domestic conflict, right? Mm -hmm. um, because we have our different philosophies about how to load and unload a dishwasher, right? Yep. Except the one... I'm a five with a six wing. I have perfected that thing. The one, <laughs> thinks, <laughs> the one not only thinks they've got it right, they're irritated with you because if you would only do it their way, you would see why it's better. Mm -hmm. If you would, if you would just unload the bottom rack first and then the top rack, you would save yourself so much trouble. And you can see how it's concern for you being expressed as anger at. You. <laughs> yeah. And so this is this is the like I said, the static that the nine feels. This is the way that the one feels that that ongoing constant static in the back of their mind. Mm -hmm. um, just this this 
oh, so many things that I that just aren't living up to the way that they should be. Should is a big word for once. Oh, it just it they should, should all over the place. Yeah, they should. They should. <laughs> um, except that they also feel that they can't express that outwardly mm-hmm. because uh, they have this same kind of sense of themselves where they should be this good little boy or girl, this perfect. Uh, they have, they have a, a sense of who they should be. And typically expressing their anger doesn't fit into that. So they just hold it down. They hold it back until at some point it, it, it bursts forth and they tend they, to just go haywire on you. The voice of their inner critic is what their major dysfunction really is. Because yeah, it gets yeah. wielded at them and the world around them. But it's the, it's the uh, obsessive inner critic. Yeah, all of us have an inner critic, this little voice, this little super ego in there that tells us, oh, boy, you shouldn't have done that. Oh, that wasn't right. But but for the one, the inner critic never lets up. It's just a constant, ongoing assault of judgment inside their uh, their own mind that it's... I, I know ones, I know ones who... Um, I mean, I've seen them when they're so exhausted from their inner critic that it starts to leak out where like they can't even hold it in. They start to just almost speak in the voice of their own inner critic mm-hmm. talking to themselves. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. It's it's exhausting. And so that's that, that's the burden of the one going through life with this this constant sense of judgment and never living up to what you should be. So so ones tend to have lose any sense of any gray area, everything, including themselves is either as it should be or it's not good enough. And so they don't even allow for any kind of sense of their own growth, their own progression. They're either good enough or they aren't. Right. And that's why the the path toward health for a one is accepting that life is a process Mm -hmm. and that people are trying, even if it doesn't look like it, you know, uh, reckoning with the fact that um, people have pasts that haven't let go of them yet. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, recognizing like the idea that a, every person could potentially be doing their best, no matter how um, unrealistic that may seem on the surface, the idea that everyone may genuinely be doing the best they can is a huge stumbling block for ones and is also their liberation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that, that's including them. Like you have to accept the fact that you may be doing your best and that your standards are just oppressive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just impossibly high. <laughs> yeah. 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 In fact, you, you could, a. I, I feel like we keep adding in like new little nuggets. I mean, and so everyone's going to know like the very least about the five because that's where we started. But you could identify um, for each type something something about themselves that they over-identify with. Mm. And so ones over-identify with their own impossibly high standards. That's where they get their sense of who they are, their sense of meaning is by latching onto these impossibly high standards and ultimately it's it's kind of their downfall. Mm. And that's how, I mean that you like I said you could point out one of those for each type. Yeah. If you want to learn more, I'm sure that we'll cover that at some point on our podcast. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs>
We're just going to make that our refrain. No, that's, that's a great refrain. Just keep plugging. We begin with the twos. Oh, twos. They're so sweet. The terrible twos. So nice. They're they're wonderful. They're giving. They they are kind. They're charitable. No one is hospitable like a two is hospitable. Uh, they will pick up on your needs. Sometimes you that do. you don't even recognize you have them. Yeah. They're so intuitive about that. Yeah. Unfortunately. Ugh. The dysfunction of it is that um, is twofold. Um, uh, okay, that's oh man, we got to cut that out. I'm sorry. <laughs> now that you pointed it out, there's no way I'm cutting it out. I guess beer needs to be Okay, so the dysfunction of a two is twofold uh, in this way. So yes, they are exceptionally gifted at picking up on the needs of others and meeting them before they even uh, are manifest in that person. Um, you know, to varying degrees. However, um, that ability tends to be a way of avoiding their own needs. Uh-huh. Twos are very out of touch with their own, um, their own real needs and desires. Um, Sometimes they're totally out of touch with them. They don't even recognize they have them. Sometimes they just don't feel like they have the authority to take those seriously. Um, um, They have this uh, judgment thing going on. Uh, Twos very much need other people to see them as good. Uh And so um, they are good at meeting those other people's needs and caring for them so that everyone thinks this person is really good. And that's the, the lure. That's how twos draw people in. So the reciprocal relationship that they're trying to set up is I take care of you so that everyone else will take care of me because they almost need that because they're not going to do a great job taking care of themselves necessarily. And yet at the same time, oftentimes they won't, ever accept your care like if you yes. say oh you know what like let me make a cup of coffee they'll say no no no, i'll make it yeah like they're gonna hop in and always be the one mm-hmm. taking care of these. There, there's this kind of like real uh just tragic switch that they, they play where like they want you to take care of them they won't ever let it happen mm-hmm. and so let's say a two wants a cup of coffee <laughs> they need to be able to make coffee for you so that they can have some. Uh, yeah. I had a roommate once who was a two, very strong two, one of the sweetest guys ever. Um, now I'm a five, right? So, um, I'm highly introverted, uh, really need castle time. And at the time I was a particularly unhealthy five. So this was all rabid. So when I would get home from work, I want to hide, right? I want to be left alone, except when I would walk through the door and he would be there, he'd say, Hey, how was your day? How are you doing? And I, I wouldn't know how to respond very well because I didn't have things, uh, to say, 
Um, but also, I didn't want to be asked. I wanted to be left alone. Right. And so I, and so I would kind of brush him off, or I'd try to give him something. One day, it just clicked in my mind. It's like I saw it in his eyes. He, I mean, it's not that he didn't care about my day or how I was doing. He wanted to tell me about his day. He had something he needed to share, but the only way he could have permission to do that was to ask me about my day. Because I'm supposed to do the reciprocal thing, and then I'm, I say something like, my, my day was okay, how was yours? And that gives him permission to do the thing he needs to do. Mm-hmm. And I never did that for him, right? Um, and so that's twofold. One, I need to know how to care for twos better by offering the reciprocal deal. But also twos need to rely on that less and just be honest about what they need. Just tell me you need to talk about your day. Then I'm good. I'll listen, right? Um, there's a second way in which this um, dynamic is dysfunctional, and it usually shows up more in the most unhealthy twos. Twos are the most compassionate and loving and, and gentle people unless you spurn their care. Mm. They offer to you and offer to you and offer to you, and if they feel like you're just taking advantage of them, that resentment builds and it can explode back at you with a vengeance. It can be extraordinarily ugly when that happens um, because it turns everything on its head. Mm-hmm. They know how to meet your needs and also apparently they know how to bring you down too. Um, and so just imagine like a very needy, I mean, this is stereotypical and it's a problem. Uh, we tend to associate two energy with women, especially in conservative circles and especially in Christian circles. We tend to associate two with femininity. So we have this idea of what of what moms can be like, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, or or um, just what it makes me think of is like the stereotypical Martha, like exactly. Yes. Yeah. So so run with that exactly. Um, run with a stereotype, recognizing that it is a stereotype. And imagine what happens when I'm doing everything for you and you're taking advantage of me. You do nothing but imagine the lash that comes back at you when that happens, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So that's the other dysfunctional element with twos is there's frequently the unexpected exact opposite of their whole nature. Let me me throw this out for for your audience in particular – one thing that I've noticed is within evangelical communities, uh, the, the community tries to force women into being twos. Mm, yeah. um, and I've known a lot of a lot of women who uh, still, even like ev- after they've broken from the community, misidentify as twos because of there being such a strong push, such strong pre- uh, pressure to be that. Right. So evangelicals want their women's to be their women's, women's. <laughs> women's. they want oh, their geez. women to be twos right well, um, yeah because and, like within complementarian things like that i mean there's a sense yeah, that yeah, yeah. that there's right. this yeah. help you're supposed to be the helper you're supposed to be well the, and, and i grew up in a church that didn't even believe in complementarianism but still was just more comfortable with you know we we have we have a place for you in the nursery if you'd ever like to help out right mm-hmm. Yeah. Or even that if it's not compliment complementarianism, there's still an assumption like, well, 
you know, women are the more compassionate uh-huh. of the genders, right. right? Yeah. Or just all of those assumptions about how this has to work. You're so naturally caring. So even if women don't necessarily misidentify as two, sometimes there's residual guilt because they're conscious of not yeah. being two enough, mm-hmm. right? Imagine a woman who grows up as an evangelical and is an eight, right? Imagine the conflict that goes on where they're they're instinctively leadership material. Mm-hmm. They they want to accomplish things. They're more likely to run someone over than help them up, not because they don't want to help people, because they do want to help people, right? right? And then you force them into a two role. What happens to people when you do that? You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. So yeah, I think that that's definitely worth worth noting yeah, here. Definitely, that's uh, a very good point. Thanks. I've got a few. <laughs> so the thing, I mean, the things we can hold on to from the two as we move into the others um, is this external locus of identity, right? Um, I need you to let me know that I'm good because I have trouble identifying as good myself. Mm-hmm. That'll be something that we keep uh, a hold of as we move through the heart center. And, yeah, because that's all of the heart center deals with issues of image and and deceit around that image mm. so the two kind of, there, there is kind of like a deceitful little game they're playing they're trying to lure you in so that you know i'm gonna help you and and care for you and then you're gonna come around and and appreciate me and love me and give me the things that i want but we're never gonna talk about it they feel like they need to lure you into yeah, it yeah there's a sense of performance like um, yeah, and it so, is performance. Yeah. Yes. And so that's what these are things that we uh, see in, in all three of the heart types is is this this building up of an image in order to to gain the love that they want that they can't feel they can access except through deceit mm-hmm. through some kind of game through, th- through some kind of trick. Threes do that in a way different than twos. Threes are are uh, they're chameleons. They are chameleons. Because it's frequent for some of the rest of us um, to look at three types and say, okay, you're you're all these different things in these different situations, but who are you really? And a three says, what do you mean who am I really? I am a chameleon. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, When a three walks into the room, and I've actually asked this of threes when they're trying to, to figure out what they are. When they walk into a room, they understand who they need to be for that room in order to look successful. And they instantly put on that mask. It's not even like uh, thinking about what do I need to be. They just recognize it. They put on that mask. They are that person. They just adapt in that way. Mm-hmm. And they on this image of, of success, um, uh, this, this image of prestige, uh, and and they just do that like everywhere they go. I know someone who who works with a three, knows him very well, and has said that there's times when they're in meetings together, and he goes, "I just don't even recognize that guy," mm. because he just it's it's a different a different person, a different mask that he needs to put on, in order to seem successful, and it's different than any other mask that my friend has seen him put on before. And he's just like, "Who is this guy?" They just switch that easily. No. Most of us do belong to more than one community, right? Like, yeah, so we yeah. belong to a home community, 
um, a work community, a faith community, maybe a residential community. Like we belong to multiple communities and those communities are partially constitutive of who we are. Right. And so when I'm in a different place, I act appropriate to that place. Yeah. Except I do my best to fuddle through that. And a three instinctively excels in each one of those places with seemingly no concern for how they might be in conflict with each other. Mm-hmm. So it's easy for the rest of us to call that hypocrisy, except not necessarily. Now, yeah. it is the three's task to begin to discern what's the consistent thread in all that and how yeah. can I integrate the different parts of myself so that I'm consistently yeah. who I am even as I'm chameleoning myself in these communities. Yeah, who, who am I underneath all these masks that I put on? But it doesn't change the fact that they're exceptionally good at adapting and, and making themselves successful. Yeah, and threes become very good at identifying goals, seeing what obstacles are in the way of achieving those goals, finding the most efficient way, threes love efficiency, finding the most efficient way to maneuver around those obstacles and look good the whole time doing it. <laughs> yeah. They, they, they do. They really do. Threes just always, they're, they're, are very good at actually attaining success and looking good doing it. It may not be any surprise, therefore, to find out that very many po- politicians are threes. Mm-hmm. They excel at exactly those skills that it requires to be successful in politics, the way our system is set up. And that kind of like polished mm-hmm. image crafting skill, the threes have. Which is frequently why uh, the rest of us common people uh, are suspicious of politicians and we we have this perception that they're often untrustworthy or hypocritical mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or whatever, that there's something they're hiding, um, which may be true and it may also be that they're th- they're threes and yeah. they haven't figured out how to how to integrate themselves yeah and and threes often too kind of have something to hide um because they threes oftentimes don't let people get very close uh not because they're afraid that you'll see what's underneath but because they're afraid that there might not be under anything underneath at all if they haven't found it themselves mm. they have these masks and they lose touch with their actual own sense of like a consistent self. So that's the bargain that the three makes and the burden that they bear is, I'm really not sure who I am at all. I'm just really good at this game. And so threes will oftentimes be the last ones uh, to to come to any kind of self-work or anything like the Enneagram because their game seems to work. They actually get what they want out of it. They want success. They're typically really good at getting it. And that will sustain them where for most people, by the time you're in your mid thirties, you know, you've kind of hit the limits of your own uh, personality and you find that you, you kind of feel like you're in a trap and you're not really getting what you want out of it. And, and um, you kind of run into your own dysfunction. Threes can go on a lot longer before they realize that that's a thing because they want success. They're getting success. This seems to be working. Threes and eights. That's yeah. one of the things yeah. that threes and eights have in common. Um, eights are frequently one of the last to uh, discover their dysfunction as well. Because yeah. bulldozers are very good at bulldozing. 
mm-hmm. right? The a very idea that a bulldozer would stop and become self-reflective, <laughs> right, is is an absurd idea. That's almost a a, a, a cartoon, except um, that is what it takes for an eight, and it usually takes some sort of life-stopping event to make that happen. Yeah. Um, and so sometimes with threes as well. So take, for example, this image that comes around every now and then of a politician who is very successful, gets caught in some kind of um, expose, right? And their career is ruined, but in the process actually finds some kind of redemption mm-hmm. and centers and like recognizes they have a center and then becomes a healthier, more effective person, right? Mm-hmm. That's the three. Yeah, that's the three. We're almost done. Wow. Last, last one. one. So, um, brief caveat here. I'm always, I, I try to be careful when I talk about fours because I want to recognize I personally have issues with four energy, right? Um, I'm, it's not my place to type other people. I try to help people find their types, but I can't decide what someone is. But if I were to guess, I would say that my mother was a four, and mm-hmm. I have a lot of conflict there, a lot of baggage there, and I have a four wing, and the four wing is where historically I've carried most of my shame and baggage. So I will try my best to be generous to fours, be generous to fours, and talk about four energy without just injecting all of my animosity in there. But you may notice I'm very, very good at picking up on the dysfunctional notes of four energy. <laughs> Which is easy to do because they are obviously the worst of all times. <laughs> at the very With least. With that in mind. At the very least, they are the most likely to fetishize their own dysfunction. Yeah, yeah. So um, fours are the hardiest of the heart types, which in some ways is wonderful. But uh, they also get stuck there very easily. And um, fours don't find happiness in sadness, but they do find a kind of satisfaction in it. In fact, that's, they, they, it's almost like that's where they find their sense of, of meaning. It uh, helps th- them know that they're real. Yeah. I There's... know I'm real when I'm suffering. They have yeah. an obsession with authenticity, right? Yes. Well, one of the clearest markers that I'm being my authentic self is that I'm in touch with my suffering, right? So yeah. you can create this rabbit hole of the deeper I go into my own darkness, the more real and authentic I am, even though that's absolutely a fabrication. That's an artificial construction, but they're seeking authenticity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so this is this is the trick. They, like like the, the two and the three, they're seeking an image. They're trying to craft an image. But their image is, I'm special and I'm authentic and I'm like I'm just the the, the most pretty little flower in the whole uh, flower patch. And I'm misunderstood. And I'm misunderstood. <laughs> and so they tend to be outliers. Yeah. Uh, fours and fives actually both. There's a lot of weird similarities between fours and fives. Fours uh, but, and fives are the usually the first to be drawn to the enneagram and recognize mm-hmm. their dysfunction. Because fours and fives alike carry this sense from very early in life 
that we're not entirely right. Yeah, fours, there's something broken in fours us. and fives. Both have a, already have a sense and have probably always had a sense, or at least for a very long time, have a sense that we are broken. We just feel like broken little toys. And so where where most people when they're typed get this like it it hurts. It's like oh, I, I, those are all the things I don't want to know about myself. Fours and fives feel that, but then they also feel a little bit of satisfaction at going, oh, that's, there's a, there's that's a name for that. There's yeah. there's other people like me that are broken like this. Mm-hmm. Even before I knew the Enneagram, I used to talk about myself, and I, I shared this, this analogy with Steve, too, where I said, I just feel like I'm Pinocchio hoping to become a real boy someday. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Long before I yeah. ran into the Enneagram, I would say things like, whatever it is that other people have, I don't have it. And yeah, fours very much feel that way. Fours tend to look around, and even though they're crafting this image of how special they are, they tend to be really, really talented in the arts. Not always, but this is where there's an overwhelming number of fours in the arts compared to other types. They're very good at at delving the depths of emotion and finding Mm -hmm. ways to express it. That's their gift. And so even though they tend to... Uh, just ha- be immensely talented in those areas. They will look around and say, "Oh, everyone else is just so more talented than I. Everyone else just has something that I that I don't have." They will they will comp- just obsessively compare themselves with others and always come up short. Uh, and so, I mean, obviously there are different ways of being a four, right? Like. We could talk about the three subtypes of being a four, or you could be four with a three mm-hmm. wing or four with a five wing. But there, even beyond all that, there's an infinite number of ways to be a four. So occasionally you do get this four type that is ultra confident. They know their work is the best. And so the cliche of that is the overconfident artist, right? Like, um, they know they're the best and they kind of scorn what everyone else does. Mm-hmm. But then there's also the self-defeating artist, right? Which is another cliche, but it's an exaggerated version of, of an energy that fours frequently fall into where they're creative and they might even think their stuff is good for a while, except they're going to measure it up with everyone else. And they know everything wrong with what they've done and they see nothing wrong with what everyone else yep. has done. And it can be this paralyzing self inflictual uh, dynamic. Mm-hmm. And so the, the game that the fours are playing is that they feel like they have to craft this really, truly special and different and authentic person in order to deserve love. Twos have to be caring in order to deserve love. Threes have to be successful in order to deserve love. Fours have to be special. Mm. But the the trick there is, if you are crafting an image, how authentic is it really? It's it's this this trick of trying to trying to craft an authentic mm-hmm. image. It doesn't work. Um, and and so they're they're always crafting this, and at the same time trying to hide the, from themselves the fact that they're crafting it. Mm-hmm. So all of the types construct their authenticity in various ways, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. that's just a thing that humans do and we don't like to admit that we construct authenticity, but fours are the ones who um, take that dynamic to the extreme. 
they're like the exaggerated version of constructed authenticity. So imagine someone who wears a lot of blacks and purples, has a very unique style of, of dress, which, which strangely, very dramatic. Strangely, that is a thing for fours. They tend to yeah. wear lots of black and purple. I don't know of any other type where there's a specific color and, and dress associated <laughs> with them. This is a weird thing for fours. I like it, but <laughs> I think it's because we associate, like culturally, we associate those things with mood, like mood, yeah, right? Yeah. We associate those uh-huh. things with um, passion and, and depth, right? Um, so, so I had um, when I was a professor at that university that uh, we both went to, Blake. <laughs> um, I had a synesthete in class, and she would associate. Uh, colors with names mm. and so we were asking her like oh what what color is my name and one of our one of our very good friends was in that class um and he is a four and she was like oh that name that's purple that's <laughs> real purple and he was so pleased that his name was purple <laughs> it's just uh, so it really is down to his very aura yeah, think, he think is prince. purple think yeah prince. yeah think prince prince is yeah. so four <laughs> And our friend loves Prince. He does. Wow, this is all coming together. There's an order to the cosmos, Blake. That's what I need to tell you. There's an order to the oh, cosmos. Oh, thank goodness for that. Yeah. I think that completes the tour around the horseshoe, doesn't it? I think so. Have we said enough about the four? Is there anything we're missing? I love fours. Yeah. I love them. If, if you need someone who... Like mm-hmm. when you have gone through something really terrible and you're feeling these emotions and you're not even sure how to sort them out, what a four will do is a four will just sit down in the mud with you because they're not afraid of the strong emotions. Yes. They, yes. They're not scared off by yes. them. They know how to handle them and they can handle them with you and they can help you sort out even like your emotions. Mm-hmm. When you don't know how to handle this strong feeling, they do. Yeah. And they'll do it with you. And that's that's the beauty of force. There's they're, like they, um, I, I I love them. If you need someone to sort out your mind, and help Fives. you go to a five. If you need someone to sort out your heart, you go to a four because they're the ones who do that obsessively. They're exceptionally good at it. Yep. yep. So they need to find a balance Except, themselves, but it becomes a, a gift to others. So I'm a five, and Steve is a five. When when my mind is going all crazy. Uh, I can't sort out my own thoughts, but if Steve comes along, he can help me sort out my thoughts, and, and I do the same for him. Yes. Fives are really good. We know the headspace so well that if, if you don't know how to sort out your thoughts, we can come along and, and help you rearrange them and sort them out. Fours do that with the heart, but in the same way as I can't sort out my own head, I need Steve to come along, fours don't necessarily know how to sort out their own hearts either. We can do it for anybody, but not ourselves. Mm. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, that is the Enneagram. We're done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now everyone knows everything they need to know about the That's Enneagram. That's right. We've, we've now addressed the most superficial level of the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. You know, we, honestly, uh, one of our episodes that we've recorded for our own podcast, um, we do the same thing. We do it a little bit more in depth, but even still, it's, it's a little superficial. Um, so, uh, but, but I, I'm hoping that this introduction is enough to get people interested and, and to explore. Right. No, this, and that, yeah. And 
and I haven't addressed it directly within within you know within the podcast or anything. And it is that's the thing about you know coming to this, even as someone that's sort of approached it from different sides over the last year or two, as I've been exposed to it through through Stephen and and you, Seth, and through other people that I know online, like just trying to even yeah. trying to like understand the jargon that you sort of run into. You know, because people throw it around online now. And, like, honestly, one of my resolutions for 2018 was, like, <laughs> like understand, understand this jargon, even at the base level, you know, because. Yeah. I, should we tell your listeners that that's actually how this, this came about was one day you, you tweeted out, I guess I'm going to have to learn the Enneagram just so I can continue <laughs> to have conversations on this thing. <laughs> yes. And, and we said, Hey man, we'd be happy to help. Yeah. And, and yeah. that was actually before we even had decided to do our own podcast. But, right. Um, yeah, exactly. That's kind of where, um, our lives were going anyway. And right. so it all just kind of came together in this really, again, if I can use the word providential way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that, that we love and we want to share that love with you. Right. Yeah, and, and I appreciate it. Like, and that's the thing. That's what I I know. Even like again, sort of bringing back how how much I've sort of circled this this topic um, personally is. I know Steve on Facebook somewhere was like, you know, the best way to do this is through conversation. Books are okay. Books are fine. You know, you can learn a lot through books. But one of the key things about this is that it really helps to have conversations with people that have done it before and et cetera. So I'm thankful for, for both of you taking the time to, to dive into it. Um, it's our pleasure. And that is where part one of this conversation ends. Check in later this week for part two, where Seth and Steven type me on air. It's going to be all sorts of fun. Talk to you soon.